Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him, and set him in the midst of them, and said, Verily I say unto you, Except ye be converted, and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Thank you. You may be seated. So who's the greatest? Uh, through the centuries, there's been different people, historical figures that said, I'm the greatest, or I'm the greatest, or you're the greatest, or whatever the case might be. We have a new word in our culture now. It's GOAT, G-O-A-T, and that stands for greatest of all time. Greatest of all time. So that's what GOAT is, but it's still asking or answering the question, who's the greatest? Well, speaking of GOATs, there was an elderly minister who was invited to family dinner after church one Sunday. While the parents were in the kitchen getting things ready, the minister and the little boy were waiting in the living room. The minister asked the boy, I wonder what we're having for dinner. The little boy said, we're having goat. Well, the curious minister asked, how do you know we're having goat? The little boy replied, I heard my dad tell my mom, let's have the old goat for dinner today. (laughs) So who's the greatest? Let's look first of all at the question, who's the greatest? The disciples had been jockeying for position with each other. Now, if you read this in context, we're in Matthew, but if you read the context of Mark 9 and Luke 9, you find out that Jesus, prior to this, has just announced that he's leaving. He's announced that he's going to be crucified. He's leaving. And so the disciples are arguing about who's going to take over. If Jesus is leaving, somebody needs to pick up the reins. Who's it going to be? Each disciple could think of a reason that he would be the greatest, that he would be the one to take over. In fact, they were arguing about it. Look here in Mark 9, 34. But they held their peace, for by the way they had disputed, that means they're arguing, they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. In fact, if you read the verse right before this, Mark 9, 33, it turns out the disciples were embarrassed when Jesus confronted them. He said, hey, what were you guys talking about along the way? He knew. He said, what were you guys talking about? Well, they didn't want to say. They were embarrassed. And so he launches into this, who is the greatest? Let me say this. This is a question. Who's the greatest? This is a question that genuine believers never need ask. We never need ask because we already have the two answers. Jesus is the greatest and I am not. All right? If you learn that, you've learned plenty today. Jesus is the greatest and no one else is. You see, while popularity or position is a concern of the world, it's no concern of the kingdom. Yes, the world is concerned about who's popular. The world is concerned about who has what position. The world is very concerned about those things. It is no concern of the kingdom. And so according to Jesus, we'll see in this passage here, being great in the kingdom requires three things. Conversion, humiliation, and reception. And we will see those beginning with the conversion. Jesus says in verse 3, you want to be great? You must be converted. Now, as I already told you in the children's message, the Greek word there for converted means to turn completely around. Not slightly, but completely around. And conversion results in a complete life change. It changes our attitudes. It changes our, uh, it changes our allegiances. It changes our activities. Conversion is evidence of salvation. If you want to know if you're saved or not, know this, conversion is evidence of your salvation because if you've not been changed... You've not been saved. I want to say that again. If you've not been changed, you've not been saved. You might say, well, I, you know, I put on a nice suit or a nice dress and I come to church and I go to Sunday school and I bought a new Bible this year. If you've not been changed, you've not been saved. 
It's that simple. Jesus said, you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, you've got to be converted, completely, totally changed. Now, we don't change ourselves. God changes us by His grace. When His Spirit moves in, sin moves out. And that results in a complete change. In fact, Paul would say, we become a new creation. Look at this in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Now, every birth is a creative act of God. The first birth is an absolute miracle of God. Because every child is made in the image of God. Every child possesses worth and dignity because of that. And that is why life must be protected at all stages and at all costs. But the second birth, being born again, is no less miraculous than the first birth. The second birth is also a creative act of God. And Jesus taught that being born again is essential. Look here at John 3.3. 3. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so the first birth is an absolute miracle. The second birth is an absolute miracle. Obviously, you've got to be born once. But Jesus said you must be born again. But back to this verse, it says, in 2 Corinthians, it says, All things are become new. Doesn't that sound a little strange to you? Behold, all things are become new. Well, it may sound a little strange, but it's because the Greek perfect tense of the verb is being used there. And what that does, it indicates something that becomes new and stays that way. Something that becomes new and is everlastingly new. So it sounds a little strange. All things are become new. But that's translating exactly what Paul meant to write. Once you come in Christ, you become a new creation and you stay new forever. You see, if you only stayed new for a little while, and then you got kind of dingy, you got kind of dirty, well, that would be bad. But when you truly come to Christ, He makes you new, and He keeps you new forever. And herein lies the basis of our eternal security. Once saved, always saved. Because once Jesus makes you new, once He saves you, you stay new, you stay saved forever and ever and ever. Amen. So if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So what's new? Paul says all things, but let me give you a few examples. We get a new nature. We get a new Lord, a new master, a boss. That's Jesus Christ. We get new priorities. They're called kingdom priorities. In fact, uh, Andy had just shared this in Matthew 6.33. Jesus says, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We get a new attitude. It's now an attitude of gratitude. As Paul would write in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, in everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. And not only do we have a new attitude of gratitude, we have a new attitude of servitude. Not only do we have a new nature, a new Lord, new priorities, new attitude, we have a new citizenship. In Philippians 3.20, Paul says, we are now citizens of heaven. Oh, we're still citizens of earth, but we're dual citizens. We're citizens, permanent citizens of heaven. And sixthly, when we come into Christ, we have a new battle. A new battle. And Paul describes this battle in Ephesians 6.12. He says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Now, don't misunderstand. When you come into Christ, you don't get a new enemy. You just get a new battle. Because Satan is your enemy, whether you believe or not. If you are believing in the Lord Jesus Christ here today, Satan is your enemy. 
If you're an atheist here today, Satan's still your enemy. He hates you. He hates believers. He hates unbelievers. He hates everybody. He probably hates himself. He hates everybody. And so when you come to Christ, you don't get a new enemy. You just get a new battle. And it's this battle here that Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12. So Jesus says you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you need to be converted. You need to be totally and completely changed. And that's only something that God can do for you. So let me ask you quite simply this morning, have you been converted? Have you been converted? I'm not talking about you converted from one religion to another religion. Or you converted from no religion to some religion. Have you been converted? Has your life totally and completely been changed? Remember, if you've not been changed, you've not been saved. Have you been converted? And remember, this is not something you can do for yourself. Only God can do this for you. Has your life been radically changed by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ? And there's only one way that can happen. You need to believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins. That Jesus was buried for your sins. And the third day, Jesus rose again from the dead. This is where it all begins. You receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. He will convert you. And so Jesus said being great in the kingdom requires conversion. Secondly, he says it requires humiliation. Look in verse 4, humiliation. Jesus calls a child over to him and he uses this child as an object lesson. And Jesus said to be great, you want to be great? You must be childlike. If you want to be great, you must be childlike. What does this mean? Well, Jesus is not saying you have to be immature like a child is. He's saying you need to be trusting like a child is. You need to be obedient like a child is. You need to recognize you are helpless or dependent just like any child would. Remember I told you that the world is concerned about popularity and position, but not so in the kingdom. Well, most children are not popular. Most children are not in high positions. And when you think about it, what children have has typically come from their parents. Well, how does that connect to us? Everything we have and everything we are has been given to us from God, our Heavenly Father. And so we need to be like children, not immature. We need to be trusting like children. You know, children will believe just about anything you tell them. Don't take advantage of that, by the way, but they will, they will believe just about anything you tell them. Like if you go outside and there's some clouds in the sky, and you say, you know what, those clouds are made out of cotton candy, they'll believe you. They're trusting. Children are obedient. Now, I know there's, there's exceptions to that where children, you know, they defy their parents. But typically, they're afraid of punishment. They're obedient. They do what they're told to do. And we all know that in and of themselves, children are helpless. They're dependent. And so Jesus pulls this child over. He says, look, you want to be great in the kingdom of God. You need to be like this child. You need to trust me. You need to obey me. You need to acknowledge that you are helpless. You are dependent on me. So I asked you before, have you been converted? Let me ask you simply. I guess I don't have that slide. (laughs) Have you humbled yourself like a child before God? Have you humbled yourself? Admitting that you need Him. Trusting Him completely. Obeying Him with all you have. So you want to be great in the kingdom? It requires conversion. It requires humiliation. But thirdly, I said it requires reception. Notice from verse 5, I didn't read this, but Jesus said, when you receive a child, you receive me. When you receive a child, you receive Jesus. 
Now, I believe Jesus is speaking on two levels here. He's speaking literally and figuratively. So let's look at the literal first. Literally, receiving children means that you would be meeting their needs. Their physical and emotional needs. That's their temporal needs. But also their spiritual needs, their eternal needs. And I'm so glad that we receive children here at First Baptist Church. We do. We receive children here. We have Sunday school. We have uh, other activities. We have children's sermons. We have Upward. We have Awana. The list can go on and on and on how we literally receive children here at First Baptist Church. But Jesus was not just speaking literally. He was speaking figuratively. Because when he pulls that child over and puts him in the middle, that child represented believers who are helpless, powerless, and needy. And Jesus said, when we receive them, we receive him. And when we receive Jesus, he said we receive the Father. Look here at Luke 9, 48. Whosoever shall receive this child in my name receives me, and whosoever shall receive me receives him that sent me. For he that is least among you, the same shall be great. And so when you literally receive a child, Jesus says, you receive him. And if you receive him, you receive the Father. And figuratively, figuratively, when you receive a child, somebody who's helpless and needy, you receive him. And when you receive him, you receive his Father. You see, serving the greatest makes you great in man's eyes. If you find somebody that's real popular, that's real, uh, real well-known, and you serve them, then everybody else is going to think you're great. But when you serve the least, that makes you great in God's eyes. So do you want to be great in the world's eyes? Or do you want to be great in God's eyes? Again, serving the greatest makes you great in man's eyes. Serving the least makes you great in God's eyes. Courtney shared with us as she was talking about safe nights, Matthew 25, where Jesus says, Whatsoever you've done unto the least of one of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. Again, when we serve others, we serve him. When we serve him, we serve his Father. That's what he said. But I want you to look down in verse 5. There's a difference here between receiving others or serving others and receiving others in Jesus' name. You see, many serve others with the hope of a return. Hey, I'll help you and you help me. I scratch your back, you'll scratch my back, right? But when you serve in Jesus' name, you are serving them out of love and out of obedience to Him. You have pure motives because you have no hope of return. You're not hoping that your back will be scratched at some point. Serving the least among us ensures that our motives are pure. Because the least among us, they're not important. They can't offer us status. The least among us are not powerful. They can't offer us position. The least among us are not wealthy. They can't offer us riches. And so when you serve the least among you, whether it's a literal child or a figurative child, you do so out of love and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know you ain't getting nothing back from that person. Because they are unable to respond. But please understand this, that serving does not guarantee your eternal future. It's just evidence of it. There should be a whole list of things, like we talked about conversion and humiliation and now reception. Serving others, receiving others, doesn't guarantee your eternal future. It's just evidence of it. You see, Jesus taught that true greatness lies not in ability, but willingness. He taught that true greatness lies not in abundance, but in sacrifice. He taught that true greatness lies not in authority, but in servitude. 
In fact, Jesus said, The greatest among you is a servant. Look at this, Matthew 23 and 11. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. Now, you know, that flies in the face of everything that we're told out there in the world. Because if you're great, you have servants, right? People serve you. Jesus said, If you want to be great, you serve. And we know that Jesus came as a servant. He said in Mark chapter 10 and verse 45, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. So that brings up a question then that I need to ask. Who runs this church? Who runs this church? If everybody's a servant, the greatest is to be a servant. Who runs this church? I'm your minister. That word minister means servant. And we have a board of deacons, but the word deacon in Greek means servant. So if I'm a servant and those deacons are servants, who's running the church? Who's the boss? I will tell you, Jesus runs this church. It's His church. He paid for it with His own blood. The pastor doesn't run the church. The deacons don't run the church. The trustees, whoever, they don't run the church. The Lord Jesus Christ runs His church. He said, Brother Gary, you got that all wrong. He said, we have business meetings. The congregation comes together. It's called congregational government. And the people in the pews, they make decisions. They decide what this church is to do. My friends, we may have congregational government, but Christ is our governor. I don't run the church. Deacons don't run the church. You don't run the church. The Lord Jesus Christ runs this church. It's His. He paid for it with His own blood. And so we looked at receiving children here. But I want to point out something else. Jesus talks about the other side. Look in verse 6. He talks about offending a child. And so receiving a child, we receive Christ. And when you receive Christ, you receive His Father. But you offend a child... And again, a literal or a figurative child, you're offending Jesus. And notice what Jesus says there in verse 6. You're better off dead than to offend a child. He says you're better off to take a millstone, a big heavy rock, tie it around your neck and jump off a pier into the water. You're better off than to offend one of these little ones. In fact, look a little further in verses 8 and 9. Those who offend without repentance face eternal hell. Those who offend without repentance face eternal hell. And so, excuse me, Matthew goes on to say there in verse 8 and 9, he says, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. It's better for you to be blind in life than to burn forever. And he goes on and mentions other body parts. It's better to cut those off or get rid of them, go through life maimed, than to spend eternity in hell. Those who offend without repentance face eternal hell. And we all need to beware. Look in verse 10. Beware of offending children, literally and figuratively, because angels are watching. Angels are watching. You say, well, I think God would see everything and God knows everything anyway. He does. But just so you know, if you think you're going to offend some child, literal or figurative, know this, angels are watching. You're not going to get away with it. And so... Receiving a child is receiving Christ, is receiving the Father. Offending a child is offending Jesus. And the only thing you will receive if you don't repent is everlasting hell. 
So let me ask you a third question. Are you receiving or are you offending? Are you receiving children, literal children, figurative children, the most needy, the helpless among us? Or are you offending? Again, you receive a child, you receive Christ, you receive his father. You offend a child, you receive everlasting damnation. And Jesus said, you want to be great in the kingdom? You got to be converted. You want to be great in the kingdom of God? You got to humble yourself like a child. You want to be great in the kingdom? You need to receive the least among you. But he talked about one more thing. Let's look at the salvation. Look in verse 11. Jesus said this is why he came. He said the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. This is why Jesus came to save the lost. And know this that everyone is born lost. We are conceived as sinners. We are born as sinners. We live as sinners. That means everybody needs to be saved. There's nobody out there, and I'm not talking about if you've already been saved, but there's nobody out there that doesn't need to be saved. Everyone needs salvation. And Jesus said, this is the whole reason I came, to seek and save the lost. And then notice Jesus launches into, in verses 12 and 13, the parable of the lost sheep. Let me read it to you. How think ye, if a man have a hundred sheep, and one of them be gone astray, doth he not leave the ninety-nine, and go into the mountains, and seek that which is gone astray? And if so be that he finds it, truly I say unto you, he rejoices more of that sheep, than of the ninety-nine which went not astray. Jesus is telling the story, I came to seek and save that was lost. This one sheep got lost somewhere, and he went off to find it. This is why Jesus came, to seek and to save the lost. Now, I will tell you this morning, and I don't say this in pride, I know Jesus came to save me. You know how I know? Because he saved me. All right? I know he came to save me, but perhaps he came to save you too. This is not something that just only one or two people get, salvation. Jesus said, I came to seek and save the lost. Everyone's lost. Everyone needs to be saved. I know he came to save me. Maybe he came to save you too. And so let me ask you another question. Have you been saved? Have you been saved? Have you received Jesus Christ as your Savior? You say, well, how do I know? Well, I already told you some of the ways you know you've been saved. Your life has been completely changed. You've been converted. You've humbled yourself before God like a child. You receive the least among us. These are evidences that you're saved. Have you been saved? And if your answer is no, I haven't. Let me ask another question. Will you be saved today? Will you be saved today, right here, right now? You say, well, okay, I want to be saved. How do, I, how do I get saved? You invite Jesus Christ into your heart. You believe that he died on the cross to pay for your sins, that he was buried for your sins, and he rose again the third day. You receive him like that. You believe truly that he died, was buried, and rose again from the dead for you. This is where it all begins. And then you will notice you'll be converted because God will change you. You'll be humbled. You'll admit your dependence on Him. And you'll all of a sudden start looking at the least among you as those that you need to help and serve, not those you need to avoid. So the two questions, have you been saved? If your answer is no, will you be saved today? But back to that first question, have you been saved? If your answer is yes, 
Do you see evidence in your life that you are saved? Have you been converted? Truly changed from the inside out? Have you humbled yourself before Almighty God, admitting your dependence upon Him? Are you receiving those who are the least among us? Maybe actual children, maybe more figurative children, the least among us. Be saved today. And if you are saved, may it be obvious in how you and I live our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this simple lesson. How Jesus just takes a child and pulls a child over and says, Look, you've got to be like this. We understand what children are like. We were all children once. We see children. And Lord, we thank you for the children that you have sent to us here at First Baptist. May we be good stewards of them. Send us more. That we may have the opportunity to lead them to you. And now, Father, we ask that you would bless this time of invitation. We just ask, Father, if there's somebody here who needs to be saved, who needs to receive Christ as Savior, give them grace and faith right here, right now. And for those of us who are saved, may it be evident in how we live our lives. And we thank you in Jesus' name.